יאללה? אוקיי. So tonight the teaching is on a theme on the book of Revelation that you haven't heard anywhere else. When this is over, you'll never look at the book of Revelation the same again. And you're going to have a new challenge on how to do life. Anybody feel like we might actually be living in the book of Revelation? Okay. All right. Get your notes out. Turn your ears on. Angie. Okay. Tonight, I'm going to give you what I feel like the Lord gave me about the book of Revelation when I was a kid. It's different than what you probably have studied Revelation with before, but it's because of what's in the front of the book. And I think the front of the book's telling you how to read the book. But the book is telling you to prepare to win. It's a book of overcoming, being an overcomer. And what we're going to talk about tonight is overcoming in the apocalypse. <laughs> in that crazy time that no one knows what to do during this time that we're living in. So the beginning chapters of Revelation is a concept that's laid out that has a winning plan. And so you're asking yourself, how on earth can it be a winning plan during this? But I don't ever think that anybody I know approaches Revelation with this in mind. They don't look at the end times with this as the framework. And so I'm going to lay out for you the framework. When you read the book, are you like me? I mean, you hear the thunder rolling, the lightning. It's dark days. The skies are turning colors, the moon, the sun. Everything's going crazy. The beasts of the field. The people are crying out, let the rocks fall on top of me. You know, you're being harassed by dragons and beasts. There's trumpets and bowls and everything you can imagine falling down on you. And then, last but not least, the seven plagues <laughs> that come upon the earth to destroy that which is on the earth. And if you don't get enough out of the book of Revelation, then open your window now and look out your window. You might be seeing some of the same things uh, <laughs> outside of what we're talking about in this book. Well, the first thing that I want to say to you is, you know, when I was reading Psalm 91 and the promises of Psalm 91 and the protection through the scripture, I don't see an end date on them. I don't see an expiration that says when the end times start, these promises go away. They dissolve into the chaos around you. So I'm going to approach it that God's word's eternal. And when he speaks it, it's forever. That you can apply these promises, that you can stand on them, that in the darkest days that these promises hold true even more. You know, Revelation, I have to admit this, it's like one of these books that you get extra points for reading it. <laughs> they actually have to pronounce a blessing on you if you read the book because otherwise you would just read it once and that'd be it. You don't ever want to hear that again or think about it, especially you don't read it at night. And I get tickled to think that Revelation actually tells you, if you'll read this, you're going to get a blessing. Well, they have to say that so we can consider ourselves blessed. But I want you to think on terms of what I'm going to say and that perhaps we have a misconception of the book because the book starts out with a concept. You know, if we were thinking, what concept does Revelation start out with? Well, we could say, well, it says, to him who survives... Are, are these rewards and these promises to anyone that can possibly make it through this, then I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you some rewards and some promises. 
Or you might be kind of one of the theologians where you read it as the woes. <laughs> Woe to him who survives. <laughs> there are so many thoughts, so many theories, so many explanations. People have come up with all sorts of things. You can do charts, you can do everything you can imagine with it. But never have I heard it this way. That Christians are not supposed to be survivors, but overcomers. And tonight, I want you to take a deep breath and say, I am not a survivor, I'm an overcomer. Because the best, that church, the best that the theologians are teaching you, the commentaries, people that have blogs all over the place, the best they're going to tell you is try to make it through. But the chapter begins with, to him who overcomes. Now take a deep breath and just receive it. I am an overcomer through Jesus Christ. To him who overcomes. Y'all, this would be a hopeless book and no amount of mental gymnastics and working your brain around and trying to make you believe it could make you believe this is a positive book. It's not. But in it, God is giving you something, a framework, so that you can overcome in the days that you're living in. It is not meant for you to barely make it. You know, you kind of remember video games. Da, 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 and you survive so you can live another day. <laughs> and that's what we think of. It's just, can I make it through this just so I can live another day? Well, we had never thought of it in these terms until we started doing interviews in Israel. And so Steph and myself had done so many Holocaust interviews that even some of the Holocaust people were questioning us going, do you have an obsession with this? And we had heard all different types of stories about people who had, over, uh, who had survived the Holocaust. And I'm, I'm saying these are some of the most precious, gentle, cry your eyes out, stories that you have ever heard from the most gentle people some of the ones that you just you you can't imagine what they have been through and it makes a problem for us because when we see the map of Israel and we hear of something happening over in Israel every city has a person that means something every section of Israel has something that reminds us of a memory of someone we spoke to. These are our stories, and this is what we brought home. And so when we come home, we're full of all kinds of ideas, of things that we've learned. The Jewish people are very intelligent. They, they think like no other person thinks. The Holocaust has been thought out, <laughs> reasoned out, <laughs> you know, fought out. Every single aspect of the Holocaust has been delved into. But in the midst of it, we were preparing to speak. And we were speaking at Santa Ana First Baptist Church, and suddenly we realized there is a big difference between two sets of people in the same exact concentration camp. And we were like, what was the difference? What made the difference? Both people are loved by us. Both people are cherished by us. But we saw something that we had never thought of before, and that's what illustrates the difference between two types of believers that will go through the, holo uh, the Holocaust. <laughs> if I'd been in the Holocaust, I would have thought it was the tribulation. But 
the two sets of believers that will go through the end days, the tribulation, and all that we have to face. So as we were preparing to speak and we were listening to a voice we had recorded on our interview recorder and Steph decided, well, I think it would make this more realistic where they'd feel this moment more if you let Gina in her own voice tell her story. And, of course, it was a, it was a meaningful moment to us because she had shared this privately with Steph while we were there. But we were listening to her own personal brush with death. And what we heard in her was something we had never thought of before. But as she told her story, her voice began to shake. And it began to quiver. She was 16 years old. And being the kind of storytellers where, where, where they can describe things with unbelievable words and memories, she took us, she transported us back to that moment when she was 16 years of age. Now, the, the unique part of this story is she had just taken her granddaughter to this place that she lived in the ghetto and showed her where her house had been and realized when she told her granddaughter the story of what happened to her that her granddaughter was the exact same age as she was when this had happened in her life. As she told her story, you could hear the sounds as had been happening in the ghetto. You could hear the, the terror and the screams. You could see in her eyes that it reflected the terror that she had beheld during the war. And that's when we realized that Gina is a survivor. And you know, one of the things that they had told us as a survivor that one thing they said to Hitler is they would shake their fist and they said, what we're going to do for vengeance is survive. They said, the way we pay Hitler back for what he's done of six million of us is that we will live. And you feel that strength of will when they say, we are survivors. And you think about it, it really has happened. Hitler's dead, and they're living. <laughs> They've gone on to have their children and their grandchildren. And they did have that rise up in them that they would survive. You know, she's, Gina was not only happy that she survived, but she was grateful because she saw so many people who didn't. I mean, she was very grateful to be a survivor. She had seen so many people that were murdered. You know, she was living in the ghetto with her mother. And during hard times, hard choices are made. And sometimes life can be lost or gained in a split second. And when you're thinking about your children, and you're a mom, a dad, and you're making decisions that affect the ever after, you can imagine what was happening on this particular day. The Germans didn't make anything possible. They took all hope of life away. And on that particular day, her dad... Her brother, her uncle, had left work, leaving Gina and her mother and her aunt at home that day. So the men had gone to their horrible work conditions. The women were left back at home, and suddenly the Germans announced. They made an announcement. They didn't have time to talk this over as a family or anything, but they made an announcement that everybody in the ghetto must meet at 12 o'clock in the assembly area. And they said, anybody who refuses to come will be shot on the spot. 
you know, you can imagine the fear. The mom knew why they were gathering them. She understood what it meant to assemble. But Gina's mother declared she was one of those type of women. You think, whoa, what would I do if I had a mother like this? But she told Gina, we are not going to that meeting. Her mom knew something. She knew that if she did, she would be separated from the men and they would be rounded up and carted off in railroad containers. And she wasn't going to do it. She wasn't going to have the family separated. She was staring death in the face. If the Germans found them, they would surely die. Gina, she was hysterical. <laughs> She's got two problems now. <laughs> She's got the 12 o'clock deadline, and she's got a mom that's not going to let her show up. Her mother was adamant. This family will stay together. So what was her mother's idea? Her mother found a very large basket, a wicker basket. Not much security there, but she took the 16-year-old Gina, and she placed her in the basket, and she locked the lid. Then she left Gina alone, and she went to hide in another place along with the rest of the women. Gina waited in the basket. Hours passed. And sure enough, the 12 o'clock hour comes, it goes, and she heard someone enter the downstairs apartment. She knew who lived there. She knew her neighbors. The Germans had come. The gunshots rang out as she heard the screams of finding the neighbors. Just like her, they had decided to hide. They had decided not to go. They hear the steps, the heavy German boots as they make their way up to where she is. They had found her neighbors and they had carried through on their threats. As she heard these brutal murderers of those she knew coming closer to her, from inside the basket, Gina cried out to God. She was pleased to tell us, I cried to God. If you can imagine her voice the shaking, and she cried to God and said, please don't let them find me, God. The door opened. They came into the room, members of her family hidden all within these walls. You know how the Nazis search. You know how they look for people. Had Gina's prayer covered her, perhaps had her prayer covered her and no one else, she waited for the shots. The Nazis searched and searched, but not one shot was fired, and no one dared to move. Gina stayed in the basket until nightfall, when her brother and her father and her uncle came home and started calling out her name, calling for her, Gina, the mom, and the aunt. All three crawled out of their hiding spots. And God had answered Gina's prayer. She had remained hidden. You know, it's a miracle that Gina survived the war. However, Gina had experienced something that she would never forget. It was forever laced on the inside of her. You know, all she could do when she had experienced this miracle was try to rebuild a life that she had lost. Years that had been wasted. She had survived the horrors of the war, but maybe not her heart. Maybe it was not totally intact. You know, there was another person that was in a similar 
concentration camp. And as we began to speak to these survivors, we started understanding who was in which camps, which ones were still alive, and who spoke English. <laughs> but this person was like no one else. This person's name was Corey Ten Boom. Corey was an unusual woman. Love had passed her by. The man that she had loved had married someone else that was very rich. <laughs> and she was considered an old spinster. Can you imagine being 50 years of age and doing what she did? Oh, she ran a racket, all right. She got everybody, whatever college kids she knew. She was a youth worker, and she began hiding the Jews, God's chosen people, the apple of God's eye. And she made a uh, secret room in her, in her house, her father and her sisters, and, and they built a wall, and behind it they hid the... Uh, they made a secret compartment. Now, if you saw the size of it and six people in it, you would know that that, uh, that secret compartment was not the best of living conditions. But everyone in that house risked their life to hide six people at a time. Corey did all she could of riding bicycles and, and uh, breaking into police stations and getting ration cards to get food and, and to have secret signals. And her whole family was together in agreement it was worth risking their life for these Jews. Well, it all worked till one day when Corey caught the flu and the signal wasn't made in time. A neighbor betrayed him, said, you know, we noticed some suspicious activity going on here. The whole family was arrested and her and her sister were imprisoned in Ravensbrück concentration camp. You know, many people at this point would be thinking, I can't believe God let this happen to me when I was doing this for him. But something was different inside of Corey. Corey rose up, and she decided, why should I stop the Lord's work, even if I am in the middle of the darkest hour of Europe, in the worst of concentration camps? You know, there was a difference between prison work camps and concentration camps and what they called death camps. Corey was there with the gas chambers. Corey was there where they put the children. Corey saw the ashes. Corey was in the pits of hell. But it's interesting to say that, oh, I can't for this reason or that reason walk out my walk with God. When you listen to this testimony of Corey, you know, the degradation of being put through... Uh, the stripping process of where they take your clothes, where they take the women, they shave their heads, to be completely and utterly naked as these guys strip you, they make their remarks. She said, God, I can't bear this. You know, Corey said that what made her be able to endure this kind of treatment, and then she remembered the Lord was stripped and naked and had died for us. They had gambled for his clothes and she said, okay, Lord, I can bear it. But Corey had a secret. Was she daring to do it? It would be an instant loss of life. How would you do such a thing when they take your clothes and take your hair? But she hid a Bible behind her shoulders, shoulder blades, behind her neck. How she hid this Bible. But she knew she needed a Bible to do the Lord's work.
you know, at that point you might say, I'll just work with the scriptures I have memorized. <laughs> but Corey took the chance, and she was able to get through that kind of inspection when no one else was, asking God, God, when Jesus was on the earth, he did this unusual thing. He made blind eyes see. She said, Lord, can we have a reversal of that miracle? She said, can Jesus today make seeing eyes blind? It was this prayer that I prayed when I was smuggling Bibles, and my guards looked like they had anything but blind eyes. Eyes like this are very open to all your faults. It's very hostile. But Corey had prayed the prayer, and she snuck the Bible into the camp, and it remained with her the entire war. You know, in the German camp with all the horror, Corey said, I found many prisoners who had never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Corey went in a prisoner, but she worked as an evangelist. Corey said, if God had not used my sister Betsy and me to bring them to him, these people would have never heard of Jesus Christ. You know, there's people in eternity today with Corey who she brought in because of these moments, because of her bravery and because of uh, their Bible studies that they had. It's a heck of a way to meet the Lord, <laughs> to be put in a concentration camp. But she used all of her experiences. You know, many miracles happen in the camp. And many prisoners came to know the Lord through Corey and Betsy. You know, she was known as prisoner 66730. She was no longer a name, but a number. And Corey survived on watery soup, slept on lice-infested beds, and used drain holes for her toilets. She found it odd about one interesting part, that the guards were watching never came in to the dorm where Corey and Betsy were holding their Bible study. Another prisoner told her, that the reason the guards wouldn't enter the dorm was for the one thing that Corey said, God, I can't stand this. I can't stand this, God. It was the loss infestation. The one thing Corey couldn't stand, she found out the guard said, we won't go there. It's infested with loss. So instead of becoming discouraged, Corey responded by saying, you know, Lord, I'm going to thank you even for the loss since they kept our Bible study group from the guards' prying eyes. Corey had gratefulness for everything. One of the most interesting stories was the uh, vitamins. She was watching her sister. Her sister's health was not well. She had a little brown bottle of vitamins she had managed to get from the Red Cross. It had vitamin oil in it. And she had smuggled it in. And she was so grateful. She looked and the bottle was enough vitamins for her sister to have for a month. And as she looked around at the other prisoners there, she was so thankful that God had given her something like that for her sister. Only to realize when she was looking at the other women, they suffered from the same thing her sister had. She was like, oh Lord, no, no. What good would that be? You know what she's feeling like as she looked at these other women. So she asked the Lord, what do I do? I have enough for a month. Well, the Lord spoke to her, and uh, she lined up all the women who were ill, and she gave them each a drop. Strangely enough, as many women as she gave a drop to, 
The next day, she lined them up again. And again, there were enough drops. Again, she did it the next day. Still, there were enough. Every time she would tilt the bottle, a drop would appear at the tip of the glass stopper. Corey was thinking, this can't be. She held the bottle up to the light. Have you ever wanted to examine your miracle up close? <laughs> Trying to see how much was left. But you know the sense of humor of God. As she held it to the light, the brown bottle would not reveal its secrets of how much it still had left. Corey looked and looked, and she could not tell how much was there. You know, they took the vitamin bottle, and they spoke one night. And they told a story in Bible study from 1 Kings of the oil that never ran out when Elisha prayed. You know, if Corey hadn't shared the bottle of oil, she wouldn't have had a very good story to tell of, I've got oil for my sister that you don't have. <laughs> you have not of. If she had hidden the bottle, it would have been a completely different story. But the women understood what the sacrifice that Corey had made only for the Lord to do the miracle that only he could do. You know, another woman eventually stopped the miracle. But it wasn't so bad. She brought in some huge containers of vitamins. And as she brought them so all the women could have them, she took over from there. That night, the vitamin bottle ran dry, and there was not another drop. You know, God's way, he had provided, and it had lasted through the entire ordeal until God had supplied the need another way. You look at these stories, and you see something in Corey. You see that faith. You see that overcoming. You know, I'm looking at this story that I read, and I was thinking about Corey locked away in the death camp. And I had read this, this particular thing, and I've, to this day I still haven't been able to find it. But Corey being from Holland, it especially touched her heart the day that the train pulled in and they unloaded 200 Dutch women, women from her own country. And she knew what those women would have to go through. Corey did something that day at the risk of her life. She went up and to every one of the 200 women, she went and she hugged them. And in their ear, it said she whispered a prophecy. She gave them a word. All 200 of them were spoken by Corey something to hang on to. She would say things like, Jesus is victor. She would give them each a personal word of what she felt like the Lord was speaking to each one of them. And in the worst of circumstances, Corey overcame and helped other people overcome. And there were no excuses. She gave no excuses. You know, what was interesting is after the war, there were 200 Dutch women that survived. And they started telling Corey that word you gave me, that brave thing you did where you were willing to risk your life to tell me that God had protected Corey as she did this. You know, Corey wasn't martyred out. Oh, they planned it. The devil had it planned for her to enter the gas chambers. But surprisingly, she was released. And afterwards, she found out the story. She was told that her release was because there was a clerical error. And one week later, every woman her age in her age group was sent to the gas chambers but they had reversed the numbers 
and Corey walked out one week before that. You know, Corey, she didn't spend much time sitting back and recovering and going to her counselors and <laughs> moving her victim status around. But she began to uh, speak. She began to help other women and men that had been through this. The craziest thing that she felt like the Lord told her to do, the one thing she told God, I will not do. I will do anything you want me to do, but I shall not go to Germany. And the Lord sent her back in. Her stories of forgiveness, of being able to forgive the German guards, the time she met face-to-face in one of these meetings, the guard who had taken a, a two-before and struck her sister. As Corey began to go around the world, there wasn't anyone that could really match her story. You know, people who only survive life perpetually are bound to their experience. Have you ever met someone where their entire identity was wrapped up in some tragedy that had taken place in their life? They never can quite move past that one thing, and it prevents them from fulfilling their God-given purpose in life. You know, for Gina, that fear, the shock, the trauma. It was when we played those words, when we listened to the words, we realized something. Even though it had been decades and Gina is now in her 80s. Even though it had been decades since she had been hidden away in that basket, even though it had been decades since God had saved her when it was impossible to bring her through the war, when she told us her story, it wasn't the voice of an elderly woman, but it was the voice of a terrified girl. When Gina told us the story, she was still that 16-year-old reliving that experience. The shock had built a home inside of her. What made the difference? What changes you? When Steph pointed out to me, she goes, listen to this recording. She said, this is the voice of a woman who is still 16, and she still relives it every time she thinks of this memory. You know, what made the difference? Corey and her family had a strong, established walk with the Lord and Corey was able to overcome because she had something living inside of her called the uh, great overcomer. These are interesting stories when you think of it but it reminds you of the scripture in John 16:33. These things I've spoken to you that in, in me you shall have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation but take courage. I have overcome the world. You know, on our own, we don't have the capacity to overcome such horrible challenges. You know, my heart goes out to Gina. It's impressive after all the interviews to know that this woman cried out to God. So many didn't. She acknowledged the Lord. She acknowledged God. She acknowledged the fact that she was hoping with everything in her that he had heard her. You know, she saw God as someone that she could hope that this God who was far away, that while she hid all along, that he had heard what she said, hoping that she would make it. You know, Gina was a survivor, and she is proud of it, thankful for it. And while surviving is preferable to dying, all these great promises in Revelation aren't written to those who survive. These promises aren't made to those who make it. You know, Revelation is addressed to him who overcomes. 
These words seem to suggest that God isn't satisfied with the idea that Christians are just trying to live another day, just hoping and wishing that we make it. What is it going to look like for you? How will we face this? As Christians, it's our job to lead other people to the Lord, and it's impossible to do it effectively if we're just trying to survive like everyone else. If our goal is just to make it just like their goal is to make it, it will be impossible to do it. By overcoming, we can step into God's true purposes for our life. The scripture goes on to read, But in all these things, death, life, tribulations, the worst the devil can throw at you, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Romans 8, 37. You know, let me give you a little reality here. If surviving sounds difficult, it's because it is. What makes surviving possible is a will to live. I'll never forget my grandmother, Ruth Ruth, who told me, the reason I lived when no one else at MD Anderson had ever survived what she had, she said, the reason I lived is because I never lost my will to live. I had a will to live. Surviving is difficult, but it's impossible if you lose your will to live. You know, sometimes a person will survive because of someone else's prayers. Or maybe it's calling out to the Lord. Many times it's an escape that's the equivalent of getting by by the skin of your teeth. Surviving. Think of how many things in life you've survived. How many things you're just like, you're glad you made it. You bought the t-shirt. I survived. (laughs) Surviving is difficult. But if surviving is difficult, if all this overcoming stuff sounds difficult, it does sound that way because it is. Or maybe it's easier than what we think. Overcoming. You know, it's more than a wish to live. It is the power of God. If you plan on having the power of God when you're in adverse situations, I would suggest for you to have the power of God now when it's peaceful. That now's the time to experience what this takes of the power of God. That if overcoming sounds difficult, what do you do when you realize that the way you overcome is when someone steps into their assignment with their authority? So many people will be scrambling to learn what does authority mean? You know, I was just going to throw up a random prayer and hope it makes it. You know, some do and some don't. But to experience the difference between prayer and authority, yes, it will be extremely difficult to overcome if you have never experienced walking in your authority, if you've never experienced effective praying, where you've received the answers to your prayer, if you've never experienced authority where the impossible came, yes, it will be difficult. This is what we must prepare for, not for the end, but for our authority, for the power of God being on our life. You know, you look at it, to me, in levels. I look at levels of um, what it means to make it, and it's all, to me, represented by the Holocaust. 
You know, Naphtali described people who were put into camps. And he himself had been in one of the death camps, one of the worst. But he called these people something that you may have never heard this name. The people that they brought into the camp were called muscle men. And the name does not reflect what they were, except in some ways. They were like zombies. He said their eyes were glassed over. They had no will to live. They were like emotionally stuck in the shock that their country could have come to this so quickly, that their nation could have fallen, that this horrible thing had befallen them. You know, they were traumatized. They had no hope, but they were fresh. These people had been eating. They had had food before the imprisonment. But Naphtali and his brother had gone over a year of being in the camp, and they were skeleton thin, worn down. Every day they hoped they could possibly live. But here these guys, these muscle men, come into the camp, and they were, like they said, they had a flesh. They were fleshly. They had been eating. They had food. They were well-nourished. They had just come from their families. Everything was good in their life. They had good health. But they had one thing that they were missing. You know what's strange about this? These muscle men died within a few days of entering the camp. Everybody spoke about these people. They had that look. They had this certain way that you could say, oh, they're musclemen. They even termed something that not even the doctors were knowing what to call it because everything physically was okay with these people. You know, it's something that you've got to learn that you can't live without. Did you know what? The one thing these people didn't have that these starving skeletons did is they had something that I'm going to tell you this sentence. Hopelessness kills you faster than starvation. These people had lost their hope. The shock had taken hope right out of them. Even though they had only been captured and imprisoned for a matter of, of, of a short time and their bodies still were filled with health, there was something a lot worse than not having food. And that's when a person gives up and has no hope. You know, during the time of of the dark days that we face, you'll see people that will give up. They're called dead men walking. There's people now that even before the times have gotten extremely rough, you can already see these people. They have give up all over them. They can't make it to the end. They don't have what it takes. You know, Naphtali and his brother, they lived throughout their entire imprisonment, and I was able to visit them in their 90s to see what God had done with the purpose of their life. You know, when you begin to think that surviving's not good, I was going to tell you there's a step down from it. <laughs> and these people were not survivors. These people had it but gave up. This is what you'll be working with. It's almost impossible to reach this group of people. You know, Gina, 
she told us her story. First, she told the story in her own room. She was telling us in her living room that she had called upon God. She told Steph, I have something I want to tell you. And in her broken English, with quite a bit of Hebrew in the story, she explained this stuff, and we were like, we understand. In her own words, she wanted us to know God had saved her. And she told us, thank you for these prayers. When these missiles are even hitting us from Gaza today, she said, I can feel your prayers. I know we'll make it because you're praying. It was a very personal story. On the walls in her home were the children and her grandchildren who were born because she wasn't killed at 16. All those kids were born because they didn't find her in that basket. You know, Gina wasn't just something that impressed me right there, but if you want to watch Schindler's List and you see the final scene of the pictures, these people are real survivors. You know, they take the rock in the movie and they go and they place it on the tomb. What we met were not the actors. We met the real survivors of the Holocaust. Firsthand, I had uh, wanted to always see Schindler's tomb. In fact, one trip I went out by myself at night and I searched the tombs. I mean, I, I'm sure they thought I was Legion, the tomb dweller, as I, I went among the tombs at night just looking, trying to find Schindler's tomb, knowing that Israel had so loved him that they had buried him there. But firsthand, we had the privilege of being in front of Schindler's tomb. Oh, they had him in a very special place with gates and, and iron fences and rocks and a memorial to this man. And in that gate was Nakam and Gina, and they were telling their story at Schindler's tomb. And we had the pleasure of being there, no dry eyes among us, as busloads of people would get off the, um, the route, walk down the path, and listen to them telling this story. You know, in that scene where they show all the children and the grandchildren and you realize these people would not have even been alive, would have never had a chance to be born if Schindler had not had the courage to overcome and risk both life and fortune to save them. You're looking at how many people are affected by it. They gave their words. Oh, their hearts are very grateful to Schindler. They told us what Schindler meant to them. They told us Schindler is our savior. Watching these people speak, oh, it was real. And their message was, we survived. Standing there. Standing there watching this moment. Standing there looking at Schindler's grave that I'd so longed to see, of knowing this guy had courage in the midst of adversity. Knowing that they were interested in uh, who was Schindler's God because of what Schindler had done. Surviving. But as you move to Corey, and she gets out, you think about Corey's life. She was doing God's will before the war. Corey was doing God's will during the war. 
And Corey was also doing God's will during confinement. But now at this age and what she'd been through, you would think it was time for retirement. But think about this. Her story of overcoming only ramped up her platform. It had ramped her up to another level, and people wanted her to tell her story. You know, when Gina was 80, we could hear in her where her story had led her. It was entombed inside of her, shared to someone that she, she trusted, not told to her granddaughter until her granddaughter went to that very site and told only for the first time. Corey, when you listen to her voice and hear her recordings, you hear in her the voice of an overcomer. You hear her strength. And you hear something that I think is quite rare. You also hear the excitement in her voice. You know, that young woman in prison was just as excited there about God's miracles as she had been on the outside. Every time God provided the ration cards, every time she was able to save someone, every time that God had done a miracle. You know, Corey never lost her joy. Corey was not a saint. I think that's why I understand her so much of thinking maybe there's hope for me. Corey wanted to take the, the two before and killed the guard that had struck her sister. Corey went through the same things that I often go through, but Corey had something inside of her that drove her and that's that she had a life that must be lived and that was exciting that what God was doing in her life. Corey had purpose. You know, today I know that such memories in Corey were not keys to her past to understand why Corey was the way she was, but actually doors to her future. Overcomers have a bright future. I know that the experiences of our lives when we let God use them become the mysterious and perfect preparation to do the work that he will give us to do. Corey began to speak. I want you to hear these words and hear what she's saying. I have his presence. I have experienced his presence in the deepest hell that man can create. I have really tested the promises of the Bible. And believe you me, you can count on them. That's something we need to know. From ages 52 till 91, she took the gospel into 60 different countries. She said, Trap for the Lord is a story that begins where the hiding place ends. I knew my life had been given back, handed back to me for a purpose. When those gates unlocked and she walked through, she said she went from the gray world of prison where there's no colors back into the color, into life. She said she remembered the time when uh, at the top of an apartment complex where they had no elevator, she had to go to the very top to win someone to the Lord. She told the Lord, I'm 80. My knees won't go that many flights. And the Lord said, there's no one else. And she went to the top of the stairs, and she won a person to the Lord who passed soon after. You know, wherever Corey spoke, wherever she speaks, of African students on the shores of Lake Victoria, farmers in a Cuban sugar field. Oops, I didn't know you could go into Cuban. 
um, back then. Prisoners in an English penitentiary are factory workers in Uzbekistan. She brings the truth they learned in Ravensbrück. You know, this book in Revelation starts out with a theme, and it challenges you to him who overcomes. To him who overcomes. In Revelation 2, verse 7, it says, To him who overcomes. In Revelation 2, 11, To him who overcomes. In Revelation 2, 17, To him who overcomes. In Revelation 2, 26, To him who overcomes. In Revelation 3, 5, To him who overcomes. In Revelation 3, 12, To him who overcomes. In Revelation 3.21, to him who overcomes. I'm going to ask you tonight, are you overcoming? That is God's message to you. To him who overcomes, I will grant to you eternal life. But never have I heard it this way, that Christians are not supposed to be survivors, but overcomers. Amen.